There are some illustrations that are just quite frankly worth repeating even though I've used them before. And I'm going to share one with you that if you've been around at College Park, you may have heard me share. In fact, I had to get my daughter Savannah's permission to uh, share this story. And she said to me in a text last night, you know, dad, you share this story every year. I don't know if that's true <laughs> or if she's gaming for royalties. I'm not sure which it is, but here's the story. I'm sure that you parents know that when you take your kids to the store and they set their eyes on particular toys, your children don't have a very clear connection at times between the cost of the toy and the value of the toy. Well, as a parent, I wanted to help my kids understand that you know money doesn't just grow on trees, right? We go to the ATM and that's not like the, the money factory, right? That comes from somewhere. So how do you teach your kids stewardship and the understanding of value of money and saving and so forth. So what we did with uh, Savannah, she went to Target or Target, depending on how you look at that store. Uh, and, and she went to the toy aisle and uh, she saw a particular toy that she wanted really bad. It was a Polly Pocket. Now, Polly Pockets, if you're not familiar with them, are little plastic containers that have miniature little figurines, uh, children and uh, animals, and then you open it up, and inside this little packet is like a scene, a, a farm or little apartment, something like that sort, so Polly Pocket. And so Savannah wanted it, and I don't know, it was maybe six, seven dollars, and we wanted to teach her this lesson. So we uh, said, you can get this, but first you have to earn the money. Parents, you know this drill. And so we gave her various, you know, odd jobs and paid her very, very little. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, paid, her, paid her extremely generously for the activities that she did in order for her to be able to save up that money. And, you know, after um, six or seven years, she saved up. After a few uh, jobs, she saved up enough money. And so then we go, go to Target to pick out the Polly Pocket. You go down the aisle, grab it, and then we go to the checkout aisle. And if you've ever seen someone in front of you do this, or if you've served as a checkout person for this moment, I'm deeply sorry, because then what happens is the child puts it on the belt and then they pull out all of their coins, right? And they start counting them one at a time, right? To, because you wanna make the connection to the money and the purchase of that particular toy. And so we did that, it was a great moment, good lesson, you know, work hard, be compensated, buy things, you know, good stewardship lesson. Well, we got home. Savannah opened up Polly Pocket and started playing with it. I don't know how long it was, maybe a couple hours or so, and something happened while she's playing with Polly Pocket. All of a sudden, sort of a, a darkness kind of descended on her face. She wasn't happy anymore, and so we said, what, what's the matter, honey? Did you, did you buy the wrong Polly Pocket? What, why, why, doesn't seem like you're happy with it. And she says, I'm not. And we said, what's the matter? And she said this, I miss my money. <laughs> True story, four years old, I miss my money. I'm like, yeah, I get that, right? Like, like that is so true, because you've done that, you bought a car, right? You're like, I want this car, you buy the car, and you're like, man, I miss my money, right? Or you bought a house, and you're like, man, I, I miss, you go to your checking account after, you know, buying your house, you're like, man, I miss my money. And, and what that illustrates is what we all know, and that's, Money has power. Money has the ability to do things. Money isn't bad, but money does have a particular connection to how we feel, how secure we sense that we are. 
Today our text in James chapter five, verses one through six, is a passage that specifically addresses the issue of money, the dangers of money. And just to be clear from the outset, James is not saying that to have money, to be wealthy, is necessarily sinful. What he is saying is that no matter how much money you have, there's issues for you to consider. The hard part is that for many of us, when we hear this sermon, there's a tendency, a tendency to think that this sermon applies to somebody who's wealthier. And we can always find that person because quite frankly, most of us don't think of ourselves as wealthy even if we actually are. So from the outset, it's important to understand two things. First, wealth is always relative. If you compare yourself to Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Tom Brady, you're dirt poor. But if you compare yourself to people around the world, everyone in this room is loaded. Secondly, it's important to understand that James is talking to a particular segment of the population. He says, come now you rich. So he's speaking to rich people, however we want to define that. But the things that he says have broad application no matter if you feel like your life fits under the category of rich or wealth. And so today what I want to do is to identify three dangers of being rich, three dangers of having wealth. And if you look at verse one, I'm gonna unpack these three dangers in a moment, but verse one sort of just sets the framework. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's a pretty strong tone. Weep and howl, wow. James is using prophetic language. And these would be kind of words that wouldn't be unfamiliar to his readers, this Jewish audience. They would have been familiar with Old Testament prophets who frequently spoke this way. A few examples. Isaiah 13, wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Isaiah 15, three, in the streets they wear, they wear sackcloth on the housetops and in the squares everyone wails and melts in tears. And Amos 8 and verse three, the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God, so many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere, silence. So this is where the prophets are uniquely helpful. And, and I would encourage you, I, I think that many of us haven't read enough of the Old Testament prophets. We probably need to read them more often because they have a high view of God and also a real practical implication of their theology. They, we, we, we need the prophets today in terms of their moral clarity and their courage. Now, if you notice in our study in James, we're in chapter five, so we just have a few weeks left. We'll be concluding this series in the month of May. Where do we go next? Well, in June, we'll start a fairly lengthy series on the book of Isaiah. And I'm excited to start this series. In fact, I'm pretty stoked to preach Isaiah. If you can say stoked and Isaiah in the same sentence, I just did, because I'm really excited, because Isaiah is like the Romans of the Old Testament, and we're gonna see the way in which that book is incredibly helpful. So more to come on that. When James speaks to you rich, we're not exactly sure entirely who he has in mind, but we know that he's spoken about the issue of wealth and money before. Chapter one and verse 10, chapter two, verses three through six. So we have here a warning that has implications really for all of us to hear. So there's three warnings. Number one, that wealth can be deceptive. 
Number two, that wealth can be used unfairly. And number three, that wealth can fuel self-interest. So the warnings about wealth is it can be deceptive, it can be unfair, and it can be self-interested. So let's unpack each of these from the text. So first, wealth can be deceptive. James begins here by warning the rich about the negative consequences or the negative effects of the money that they have. It's a bit of a wake-up call. Listen to the words that he uses. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Hear those strong words? He says, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Let's start with rotted. Your riches have rotted. Well, in James' day, riches were more commonly associated with crops than they were necessarily with gold and silver. And for those of you who grew up in sort of a farming community, you know that farmers don't get paid twice a month. They get paid maybe twice a year at harvest time. That's why someone has famously said there are no farmers who are atheists <laughs> because their, their livelihood is dependent upon circumstances that have a providential connection. But, but if your wealth is connected to crops, just think how uncertain at time your wealth can be. It's dependent upon the weather, disease, or some sort of insect could devastate your not just your crops, but for that matter, your entire livelihood. Imagine that you're a farmer and you look over a field just before harvest time and you think it's just about payday. You see your wealth only then to have a natural disaster or some sort of infestation and imagine seeing the very next day your crops having rotted. James's point is this, you can think that you're wealthy and think that you're secure when the reality is it can change in an instant. I moved here in 2008 in the middle of the housing crisis. There's a housing crisis right now, which is there's not enough houses for people. If you're trying to buy a house, you know what I'm talking about. But back in 2008, that wasn't the crisis. The crisis then was the housing market burst. Foreclosures were everywhere. Major banks were failing. Um, and it had gone bankrupt, uh, housing prices were plummeting. It, 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 I remember when I was uh, a, a, about a teenager and in college, my dad talked with me about buying a house and why home ownership made sense and how housing prices go up. It's a good investment, it accumulates value. Never did I ever hear that housing prices could actually drop or plummet or bottom out. It was just a good reminder that even our best economic theories or the things that have, been true, that have been true for so many years are things actually that can change on a dime. That's what James is saying here. There are things that you put your trust in that can change overnight. He then talks about garments. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. I trust that you know that clothing can be a symbol, status symbol, a symbol of wealth. That's true in most cultures. And then think about a tiny moth and how that tiny moth can ruin your status symbol. Or maybe think of it this way, maybe more practically. Maybe moths aren't your issue. Maybe coffee stains are. I'm just talking from a personal experience. Maybe you're drinking coffee in the car and suddenly you get a stain on your shirt and you forget about it. You hang it back up. And the next morning, you think, or a week later, you think, I know what shirt I'm going to wear. I'm going to wear this one because that shirt's going to communicate an image. You're going to a party. You want to project the right image. So you choose the right shirt. You go to put the shirt on and the coffee stain doesn't just ruin the shirt. The coffee stain ruins the image that you wanted to project. 
You're angry, not just because your clothes are dirty, you're angry because your image has now been tarnished. That's what's really going on. What James is saying here is that there's connections to our wealth and how temporary our things can actually be. In verse three, he continues to talk about gold and silver and how they can be corrupted, contaminated, and decaying. Your gold and silver are corroded. And then he says, their corrosion will be evidence against you. So there's a sense of judgment here because this gold and silver has been now corrupted, apart from the power of the owner, and what's been made clear is your trust in things that are uncertain, whether it's riches or garments or gold, is a clear marker that you're living for the wrong values. The idea here is more than just money, it's the idea of where we are laying up treasures. He says, your corrosion, or the corro their corrosion rather, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This is the day of judgment. The idea is more than just laying up treasure, the idea is that of hoarding. It's the accumulation of wealth in order to provide for yourself a false sense of security. It's the way that money and possessions can create a false sense of importance and the subtle way that money can then deceive us, that money can make us feel like we're more important than we really are. Money can make us feel like we're more secure than we actually are. And what James is doing here is indirectly calling Christians to remember who they are, who's in control, and what the grace of God is all about. Because money isn't the essence of the problem. Our trust in money is the problem. Money could, see, could be seen as a really good gift from God to be used to meet your needs and to bless and encourage and help others. Money can be an unbelievable conduit for generosity and kindness and love, or money can be the thing that deceives us into thinking we're more than we really are and that we are more secure than we actually are. And James's point here is the warning about the deceptive nature of money. Secondly, he also warns here that wealth can be used unfairly. He says, behold, the wages, this is verse four, of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What he's saying here is not only that money can be used to deceive yourself, but also money can be both secured and money can be used in a way that isn't right. The issues here relate to the economic environment in which James's readers were living and how, in this context, the wealthy were taking advantage of others and treating them unfairly. Now, to be very clear and careful, this does not mean that every wealthy person takes advantage of everyone else. Please. Be careful, don't paint in broad brushes. Every wealthy person is like this, or for that matter, every poor person is like this. Instead, what we need to understand is in this context, there are particular temptations and challenges related to the accumulation and the use of wealth. We need to be honest about those, but also to realize the context in which James is writing. New Testament scholar Doug Moo provides this context. He says, first century Palestine, before AD 70, witnessed an increasing concentration of land in the hands of a small group of wealthy landowners. As a result, the small holdings of many farmers were assimilated into these larger estates, and these farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to their rich landlords. So that's what was happening. 
In this context, we have people who are working in the fields and they were financially dependent on the prompt payment, even the daily payment from these wealthy landowners. And in this arrangement, the Old Testament law actually specifically said that it would be wrong to withhold wages from people on a daily basis. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, listen to this. This is from the Old Testament law. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. That's in the Bible. It's commanding, pay your people quickly. Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. So when you have people who are living in a subsistence sort of way, who are dependent on a daily wage, for a wealthy landowner to find some excuse, I, just, I don't have the money right now, or it's a little tight, I'll pay you tomorrow, when it's within their power to be able to do so, the Bible is saying, look, that's wrong. It's not right, it's unjust. In fact, verse four, he even goes further that says that these people, their cries, when they cry out against you, these cries land on the ears of the Lord of hosts. So these people are crying out for vindication. They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for deliverance. So imagine this scene. A worker spends his day working in a field in order to provide for his family, only to receive some sort of justification as to why he can't be paid. And given his status in life, there's really nothing that he can do about it because the wealthy landowner holds all the cards. And then because the wealthy landowner doesn't feel the daily financial pressure, it's easy for the wealthy landowner to develop a calloused heart. Maybe you, you remember in history, a famous statement made by Queen Marie Antoinette during the French Revolution when she learned that the peasants had no bread and she said, well, let them eat cake. The, the distance between people can create misguided thoughts. So imagine this worker then doesn't have any payment. He goes home. He can't buy food or supplies that evening. And imagine that he finds some way to gently share this discouraging news with his family, and he sees in his wife's eyes the disappointment and the pressure that's mounting inside of her as she says, what are we gonna do? We need food. Imagine how they pray at night together. Imagine they say, Lord, we need your help. We don't know what to do. We wanna provide for our family, but I didn't get paid today. We're scared, Lord, we're frustrated. Lord, help us. James says that prayer, God hears that. The Lord of hosts hears that. The Lord of hosts is a term used in the Bible that's connected to God's power and his ability to bring judgment. And what James is trying to help us understand is look, this is a big deal. Here's what the prophet Malachi says. Malachi 3 and verse 5. Again, this is why we need to read the prophets. Malachi says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, now listen to this list, against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. And I'm sure you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages against the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So what Malachi is saying is for all of your um, angst 
morally against sorcerers and adulterers and those who swear falsely, God also is concerned when the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner are not cared for. And sadly, in global history and in church history, we conveniently find ways to slice and dice up that list. And the story of God's people and humanity is that we find ways to treat people in a way that doesn't fit with the heart of God. I mean, just study world history. You'll you'll find this throughout the story. Find this in American history. Think of um, the Industrial Revolution. Think how many laws right now are on the books because of unfair treatment of people. Think of um, child labor laws or how immigrants are to be treated or women. Look even further back in American history, just do some research on sharecropping and what happened there or even think of the institution of slavery in American history. This is one of the reasons we need the Old Testament prophets because they help us to think through not only our internal righteousness, which is really important, but also our external righteousness and how do we live this out. Now some of you have immediately started to kind of jump to a particular place and I understand your concerns or your fears. Let me just assure you, the prophets are not advocating, nor am I advocating for some sort of socialism. No way. But at the same time, the Bible is also not advocating for cutthroat capitalism. It doesn't just care about the reality of what's happening in people's lives. Rather, the issue here is to be sure that individually and in wherever we lead, that we not justify the unfair treatment of people knowing that the God of true justice sees it all. And if God's placed you in a position of authority, use your position to be sure as best as you can to live and lead in a way that fits with a biblical model of what true justice is. So James calls here for believers to be marked by the kind of graciousness and thoughtfulness that characterizes the very heart of God. What he's saying here is that wealth can be secured and used unfairly. (laughs) Don't you love the Bible? (laughs) I love preaching through the Bible because quite frankly, I wouldn't choose to preach this text. I'd be like, how about Psalm 23 today? Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So if you hear this text and you're like, whoo, this is a little tight to the vest, you're hearing the Bible exactly the way that you need to hear it. If you hear this and you're like, wow, that's a pretty easy passage. Yeah, you're not hearing James 5. If you're saying, well, what about this and what about that? Great questions. James is meant to make you do that. That's how the Bible serves us so well. These warnings are important. And here's the third one. Wealth can fuel self-interest. James connects wealth to selfishness. Doesn't mean that all wealthy people are selfish. No. Doesn't matter how much money you have, we all can be selfish. What it does mean is that often our selfishness is directly connected to how we think about our money. James says, you have lived, verse five, on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. He, he, He describes People like, look, you're, you're like an animal that's gotten fat and fat and fat, but you don't know that slaughter's coming up. The issue here, again, is not money or wealth. The issue is self-interest. They lived in luxury and self-indulgence. It means that they just live without any concern for anyone else. The self-interested living focuses on temporary perspectives. He pictures a future day of judgment that is coming, and it's as though these people are living like there's no divine accountability. He then concludes and says, 
Verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This could either mean that they have condemned the righteous prophet who are calling out their issues and people are trying to make them stop talking because they're making us feel uncomfortable. Could mean Jesus in any case. It could also mean the people who have been negatively impacted by the actions of these wealthy people. We're not exactly sure, but the point is the same regardless, and that is this. God takes this self-interest focus very seriously. Sadly, money and our use of it can show us the sinfulness around us and the sinfulness in us, and that's true no matter how much money you have. So let me give you a few applications. Take you back to Savannah's story. I miss my money, how true it is. Hmm. Three words to think about, God, grace, and generosity. First, God. We need to be reminded, in order to see money correctly, we need to be reminded of who we are in light of who God is. Because friends, the sinful use of money at every level is fundamentally a theological vision problem. If we don't understand who God is, and we don't understand who we are, money is just gonna exasperate those issues. In fact, money can be used to make yourself feel like you're a mini God. That's why when you buy something new, that feeling that you get like, yeah, yeah, check me out. Money can create that. We need an elevated view and a right view of God in order to embrace a humble, biblical view of ourselves. Or sadly, we'll never see money and possessions the right way. Instead, we'll use money. We need to remember to whom we are accountable and who possesses all of the riches and wealth in the world, namely God. Secondly, grace. The gospel tells us that God has lavished grace on us. So if you're here today not yet a Christian, this text is about money primarily, but you need to know underneath this text about money is the grace of God, which is that God is holy, we are sadly not, and that Jesus has come to rescue us from ourselves. And when God pours out the mercy and grace of Christ upon us, he gives us what we don't deserve, and that's designed to then change everything about us, not only cleaning us of our sins, but also setting us on a new path. That's why Christians are generous, because God's been so generous to us. It, it's re being reminded that everything that we have is a gift, everything. So let me just talk to those of you who, quite frankly, have a lot of money. It's not sinful for you to have a lot of money. Some of you are incredibly gifted, and you ought to make a boatload of money. I'd rather have you have money than somebody else who doesn't know Jesus, if you'll then use your money for the glory of God. So do your very best, study hard, be brilliant, do things that have unbelievable opportunities and make all the money you possibly can so you can be as generous as you possibly can. But also remember that at the end of the day, it all belongs to God. Wealth can convince you that you don't need God's help. You know that, right? The more money that you have, the more options that you have. And so sadly, sometimes it happens that the more money you have, the less you pray. Because why pray? You've got options with money. We need God's grace far more than anything that money can buy. So God, grace, and then finally, generosity. 
So what is the best antidote for slaying the power of the selfish pursuit of money? Not letting money become deceptive, not letting money be used and acquired unfairly, not letting money become the the thing that that, that somehow facilitates our own self-interest. Generosity, the giving away, is the best antidote. That's why it's dangerous to have money and not be generous, really dangerous. The Bible says it's better to give than to receive Uncurling our fingers is a regular reminder that this all belongs to God. It's, you know, you know, God doesn't need your money. You don't give because God's needy. It's sort of like how I feel on Father's Day or my birthday when, you know, my kids when they were little, like they gave me gifts, but really it was a money laundering gig because that was my money in the first place, right? I mean, it was, right? So, so I got a gift. Thanks very much for this gift that I kind of gave myself because no, no one has money in this house except for me, right? So I mean, it was kind of an end run around it, but I still am thankful. Why? <laughs> okay. I'm not going to go any further on that illustration, right? So we'll stop right there. I'm thankful. Why? Because of the intent. God doesn't need your money. What he needs is your heart. He needs you to slay the root of covetousness and say, God, everything I have belongs to you. And so in giving money away, it simply demonstrates how much I love God and how connected my life is to the dependency that I have on God's grace. And when you lack a model for how do we live like that, we need to look no further than the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said this about him. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Wow. That's how the gospel changes how you see everything including money. Oh, Jesus, would you allow us to have hearts set on the grace of God available to us through you? We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you can change covetous, greedy, wealth-accumulating, not-sharing hearts into open-handed people who say, Lord, everything I have belongs to you. And thank you for the countless number of people who live that out every single day. And God, we pray that we would be marked by the grace of God in everything that we do, slaying the idea that money can be deceptive or it can be used and acquired unfairly or that it can create self-interest. God, help us to live out the grace of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.